I want a red dress. I want it flimsy and cheap. I want it too tight. I want to wear it until someone tears it off me. I want it sleeveless and backless. This dress, so no one has to guess what's underneath. I want to walk down the street past Thrifty's and the hardware store, with all those keys glittering in the window, past Mr. and Mrs. Wong selling day-old donuts in their cafe, past the Gera brothers slinging pigs from the truck and onto the dolly, hoisting the sleek snouts over their shoulders. I want to walk like I'm the only woman on earth and I can have my pick. I want that red dress bad. I want it to confirm your worst fears about me, to show you how little I care about you, or anything except what I want. When I find it, I'll put that garment from its hanger like I'm choosing a body to carry me into this world. Through the birth cries and the love cries too, and I'll wear it like bones, like skin. It will be the goddamn dress they bury me in. Kim Adonizio, What Do Women Want? My name is Rebecca Amselem. I'm a French and Canadian feminist activist. Welcome to The Method. with time. It leaves us when age or boredom come knocking on our doors. It only returns when we miss it, when we're starved of it. We are either not listening to it or listening to it too much. What about you? What's the first image that comes to your mind when I say the word desire? desire something is to express a wish, a vow, verbally or in your head. Desire comes from a Latin word that means to be faced with the absence of stars. Therefore, to desire is to wish for something while noting with regret its absence. For Sigmund Freud, it's also a vital impulse that allows us to love, to work, to evolve, to move on. But as soon as we think we've satisfied a desire, it disappears and it is replaced by another. When we talk about desire, it is the presence of a lack of something, but at the same time, it's the sense of a project, of a quest. To desire is to be ready to change the course of things. You know, it's just not been my time to be in a relationship, but it's coming soon. If you had asked me at the age of 14 what desire meant to me, I would have answered Robbie Williams. Also, I fantasize a lot about the boys around me, but I never told anyone that because I was ashamed. I had a complicated relationship with desire. I did not even allow myself to indulge the desire to eat my fill because I wanted to be one of the skinny girls, because I wanted to be popular. And now, at 33 years old and with six years of activism behind me, I'm still happy when I realize I've lost a few pounds. I still wouldn't let myself wear the dress from the poem. The sexy, tight, sleeveless, backless red dress. Because I feel ashamed before people even look at me. 
because I have always been ashamed of my desires. The sexual revolution of the 60s was not enough to give women the right to desire freely. Yes, it made sex and reproduction outside marriage politically correct. But today, a woman's desire is still not given the same legitimacy as a man's. Does patriarchy hinder women's desires? When women are involved with men, why are they taught to respond to advances rather than make the first move? Why is a woman taught to act as an object of desire rather than to desire herself? Is it plausible to hope to reconnect with one's desires? To achieve a feminist society, the sexual revolution was a necessary step. Now, we have to move on to the next step. So in this episode, we'll relearn what the patriarchy has urged us to forget, to desire, freely. We will try to understand why repairing our desires is essential to creating a feminist society. We'll be readying ourselves for the revolution of desire. I have a very specific anecdote in my head from a party I went to. I was with a friend, and a girl came up to him and told him. Manon Garcia is a French philosopher, and she is a specialist of Simone de Beauvoir. She's the author of the book The Conversation of the Sexes, published in 2021 in France. In this book, she analyzes the notion of consent through philosophy. If you're up for it, I'll give you a blowjob in the bathroom. And he told me, and it was crazy, because he told her, no, I'm good, thanks. And he said to me afterwards, I feel like I spent my whole adolescence hoping that one day a girl would say something like that to me. But actually... It completely turned me off. He said, I would have loved to say yes to her, but I was just terrified. And I think that's interesting. Why is it that if a girl says to you, if you want, I'll give you a blowjob in the toilet right now, it suddenly doesn't feel very sexy? That's the question we need to be asking. That's what's so so complicated about male sexuality and female sexuality. It's the way in which women are not seen as a possible source of initiation. And I think that it's deeply rooted in our perception of sexuality. According to the philosopher, in this story, the woman becomes undesirable because in a patriarchal society, women's sexual desire must only be in response to men's. Male desire is represented in relation to a norm that is all about being active, conquering, hunting, a norm that suggests triumph. And female desire is represented as passive, waiting for the hunter, being the prey. Men propose, women dispose, that sort of thing. For God's sake, Mrs. Robinson... Here we are, you got me into your house, you give me a drink, you put on music, now you start opening up your personal life to me and tell me your husband won't be home for hours. So? Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> Aren't you? The American ethnographer Kristen Gotzi agrees. She's shown me the extent to which sexual desire, both female and male, is steeped in stereotypes, even among psychologists. Kristen Gossi told me about the theory of sexual economy proposed by two American psychologists in the early 2000s. According to this theory, 
Sexual relations function on the same model as the market economy. Sex is an exchangeable commodity that women own and men covet. Women give up their bodies in exchange for enough love, commitment, respect, or money. So sexual economics theory takes it as a given, a kind of biological, physiological given, that women's libido is less than men's. But that's just not true. And there's a real prohibition on heterosexual female sexuality. So when you, if you live in a society where young girls are taught to be ashamed of their bodies and ashamed of their sexual desires, then yeah, of course that's going to suppress women's libidos. So it's just that the social construction of sexuality in our societies, particularly Judeo-Christian societies, really suppresses it. that in a heterosexual relationship, it's expected that it be the men who makes the first move, the men who kneels for the proposal, the men who control sexual intercourse in the missionary position. Male sexual desire is concurring, female sexual desire is passive. According to the writer Audre Lorde, this gender view of roles exists and is perpetuated because women are still being taught to be wary of their own desires. We have been raised to fear the yes in ourselves, our deepest cravings. For the demands of our released expectations lead us inevitably into actions which will help bring our lives into accordance with our needs, with our knowledge, with our desires. And the fear of our deepest cravings will always keep them suspect and will also keep us docile and loyal and obedient and lead us to settle for or to accept so many facets of our oppression as women. When it comes to sex, women are taught from a very young age to see themselves as objects of desire and not as desiring subjects. Through warnings such as, don't wear a crop top to school, or don't come home too late by yourself, but also through the experience of lustful looks and gestures that men allow themselves to have. In the very same way, men learn from their teenage years to behave as desiring subjects, with urges to be satisfied. There's a wonderful joke that um, was told in Bulgaria in the 90s when I was doing my dissertation research on the economic transition from communism to capitalism. And this is when ethnographer Christian Gotzi, who specializes in Eastern Europe, surprised me. You know, this was a, a moment when there were a lot of new mafia being created in Eastern Europe, new, you know, they, I think we call them oligarchs now. Back then they were just thugs. And um, so there's a, there's a great joke about, in Bulgarian it's called Mutra, a Mutra. He's like a thick neck guy. And he, he has three girlfriends. And he goes to his boss and he says, boss, I'm turning 40. I have three girlfriends. It's time for me to get married. But I don't know which one to choose because I love, you know, they're all really nice and they're great and they treat me really well. So how will I choose? So the boss says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you 10,000, uh, sorry, I'm going to give you 30,000 euro. And I want you to give 10,000 euro to each of the women and see what she does with it. So he gives his first girlfriend 10,000 euro, 
And she goes out and she goes shopping and she buys herself new clothes and new makeup and she gets her hair done and jewelry and, you know, it's wonderful. And he gives the second girlfriend 10,000 euro and she goes out and buys him a new suit and she buys him some new things for his car and she buys him a nice tie and she buys everything for him. And then the third girlfriend, she takes the money and she invests it in the stock exchange. She buys some stocks and she manages to like make $40,000 and she returns the $10,000 to the guy and then she takes the $30,000 and she puts a down payment on an apartment. No, 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 no. So, 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 so the, the mutra goes back to his boss and he says, so this is what happened. He explains it. And the boss says, which one did you choose? And he goes, well, but I was beat it. Like, of course, the one with the biggest breasts. <laughs> Tells you everything you need to know, right? <laughs> so, like, the idea that I think that men, you know, masculinity can often be tied to the beauty. Like, women are a kind of reflection of the man. I think that that we live in a society which is predicated on the commodification of women's beauty. I mean, that's not a surprise, right? Um, yeah, we're in Paris, it's fashion week. It's all about the commodification of women's beauty. Punish me. Show me how bad it can be. I want you to show me the worst. The desire of heterosexual women to be beautiful in order to please men illustrates a need for validation, reinforcing male domination. And the best illustration of the shaping of our desires by the patriarchy is the female fantasy of sexual submission. The philosopher Manon Garcia devoted her thesis to this. From this, she wrote a book entitled We Are Not Born Submissive. For female submission to work, it has to be eroticized. I mean, that's the only way for it to work on a societal scale. And in the same way, For male domination to work, it must also be eroticized and erotic. For Manon Garcia, the desire of heterosexual women is clearly codified by patriarchy. The fantasy of submission, the desire to be beautiful, the desire to be thin, are all causes and consequences of the system of oppression in which we live. But these desires also feed the patriarchal capitalist society, generating its turnover on beauty products, slimming programs, sexy lingerie sets, multifunctional appliances. It is women who put pressure on themselves to cook a good meal, have great makeup, or pay for laser hair removal. And it's their male spouses, but also the male owners of the household appliance companies and the beauty salons who benefit from this. This is why capitalism and patriarchy are inseparable. Each of these two systems needs the other to survive, And they only survive by oppressing and shaping women's desires, as well as men's. But how do these imbalanced relationships of seduction arise, in which women must show that they embrace their submissive position in order to please men? Kristen Gotzi, who we heard from earlier, is especially known for her book entitled Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. Sounds good, doesn't it? In it, she explains how women's desire are conditioned by the economic system of the country they live in. In fact, 
for Kristen Gossi, our capitalist economy and patriarchy are two completely intertwined systems. What she suggests is that the economic system of a country influences not only our sexual desires, but also our romantic relationships, even the expression of our affection. I think it's really important for us to talk about the ways that love is conditioned by the political economy. And in that, there is no greater guide than Alexandra Kollontai. Kristen Gossi is also the host of my favorite podcast in the whole world, AK-47, a podcast dedicated to the Russian politician Alexandra Kollontai. Alexandra Kollontai is a figure I find incredible and for whom I profess what is, according to me, a purely professional sense of adoration and, according to the NSA, a rather embarrassing one. Alexandra Kollontai was the very first woman to be part of a government back in socialist Russia in 1917. She was also the creator of the International Women's Rights Day. And yeah, it was thanks to her that the Soviet Union was the first state to legalize abortion. Divorce? Yep, that's her. 16 weeks maternity leave? Yeah, still her. So Kollontai would be what we would call today a very sex-positive person. She had a very clear understanding of sexuality as a need, like hunger or thirst. The thing about Kollontai is that, so she makes this distinction between what she calls winged and wingless eros. And what she says is that wingless eros, which is what we would call a sort of hookup, casual Tinder sex, right, swiping left and right, is is necessary for people to survive in a world where everything is being turned upside down, where we have no stability and we feel anxious and we are, we are um, unable to sort of in exactly give the kinds of resources that we need in order to create a kind of loving couple situation. Part of that has to do with the stress of living in a capitalist society, but also part of that has to do with the property relationship that is inherent in what we think of as bourgeois love. Like when we become a couple, part of that means exclusive access to each other's bodies, but also each other's affective resources. And Kolontai wants us to move away from the property relationship inherent in our um, romantic and friend platonic relationships and to think more capaciously about a society where we can all be connected and support each other without having exclusive ownership rights to anybody in that network. And she comes up with a theory of love that basically says our ideal version of love, the, the way that society imagines love, is not absolute, but is actually contingent on the age and the way that social reproduction is being done under that particular economic system. Kristen Gotzi explains that according to Alexandra Kollontai, the economic system, the way resources are produced, always serves the interests of the ruling elite. And the elite always controls the mechanism of reproduction of its own class. She explains how the romantic ideal of love in feudalism reflected the needs of the economic elites. And she does the same thing for capitalism. And I think what Kolontai gets us to see, or at least what she gets me to see, is that like the way 
the very fundamental way that I frame love in my life, whether it's love for my partner or love for my mother or love for my daughter or love for my friends or just sort of love, kind of amorphous, like love for a sunny day in Paris, right? (laughs) Which doesn't happen very often, apparently. (laughs) So you can fall in love with it. But the idea that like this, this emotional thing that feels so raw and natural and inherent in us is socially constructed by the economic system within which we live feels weird because love, so many of us want to protect it from the market. Indeed, even if we understand that the concept of romantic love serves the interest of capitalism, it's not easy to accept that our love is conditioned by the economic system. We want it, We want to feel like our relations of love and affection are somehow outside of the world of exchange and commerce and transaction and political economy. But they're not. Every time you relate to another person, especially if you're doing it on an app (laughs) that's a for-profit company, right? Um, you're, You're engaging in a political economic transaction that is conditioning the factors that determine the way Not only that your love is expressed, but the way that you feel love and receive love from other people. The theory of Alexandra Kollontai still applies to our capitalist society. The ruling class still reproduces through a bourgeois concept of romantic love because it is its descendants who will inherit the family economic heritage. And to understand how the economic system influences our desires, let me tell you the story of a man who created the desire to smoke in women. That's right, because women did not always smoke. In the Library of Congress in Washington, there's a file called the Sigmund Freud Archives. In this file, there's a bundle of documents that belong to the founder of psychoanalysis. And among them, there's an exchange of letters dating from the beginning of the 20th century between Freud and his nephew, Edward Bernays, a PR advisor for the American Tobacco Company. At that time, the PR department was called Propaganda. More straightforward, right? And what happened is that the CEO of the American Tobacco Company asked Bernays to expand his market. And Bernays thought about women, because at that time, women did not smoke. Not yet. In this correspondence, Bernays asks his uncle how to persuade women to buy cigarettes. The psychoanalyst replies that women do not smoke because cigarettes are a phallic symbol. We'll never know if this explanation was correct, but Edward Bernays set out to sell cigarettes to women by changing their perception of them. And yes, he used feminism for this. It was April 1929 and the Easter parade was soon to be underway. Through his secretary, Bernays hired young women to pose as suffragettes. He gave each of them a cigarette to hold in the corner of their mouth. Over on his side, he warned journalists that there was going to be a suffragette happening. His plan was a success. The so-called suffragettes made the headline, saying that the cigarette represented the torch of freedom. At that moment, the cigarette became a symbol of emancipation of women, and sales soared. That's how you create desire when you're an advertiser looking to maximize your profits. And we all know another entity seeking to consolidate its domination. Patriarchy. 
made up of men who are unaware of their privileges and women who are unaware of their desires. And the patriarchy acts like Edward Bernays. It creates desires in women that make them dependent on men. But the patriarchy does not sell cigarettes. It sells social validation. For the patriarchy to sustain itself, women must desire validation from men. That's why they don't make the first move in romantic relationships, because they always need to feel validated before they act. So whether it's socialist Russia in the early 20th century or our own Western society, our desires are always shaped by the dominant economic system and the patriarchy, and always with the same aim, to keep the dynamics of male domination over women afloat. In order to perpetrate itself, Every oppression in our history must corrupt or distort those various sources of power within the culture of the oppressed, as for instance, within our culture as women, that can provide energy for change. Now, for women, this has meant the suppression of the erotic as a considered source of our power and information within our lives. We have been taught to suspect this resource It has been vilified, abused, and devalued within Western society. It was 1978 that Audre Lorde published his words from her book, Uses of the Erotic, The Erotic as Power. Erotic comes from the Greek word eros, the personification of love, creative power, and harmony. When used by Audre Lorde, the term erotic refers to any desire, not just a sexual one. Women are taught from an early age to doubt what they want and how they feel. In the meantime, men are taught to give signals of validation with a phrase, a word, a look. This is how patriarchy teaches women that their desires are less legitimate than those of men. Because to desire something is to consider oneself a subject, a central character to one's own story. Whether it's the desire to eat, the desire to make love, or the desire to become president, the question is always, How do we project ourselves into our own desire? Do we imagine ourselves to be powerful or on the opposite, weak and dependent? And today, women are still dependent on men, not as individuals, of course, but as a group, for we are all subject of the same laws of the patriarchy. Of course, we indulge some of our desires as women, but the ones we collectively indulge are those who are valid in the eyes of society, the desire to be beautiful, the desire to be thin the desire to be mothers, the desire to be married to Robbie Williams. So how do we unshackle ourselves and repair our desires? A poet and feminist Audre Lorde described herself as black, lesbian, mother, warrior. I have this picture of her in my mind. She's almost 50 years old, holding her glasses in front of a blackboard on which she has just written, women are powerful and dangerous. Women are powerful and dangerous. Because, according to Audre Lorde, desire is such a powerful instrument that it can overthrow the patriarchy. And the erotic is a measure between the beginnings of our sense of self and the chaos and power of our deepest feelings. It is an internal sense of satisfaction to which once we have experienced it, we know we can aspire. The method of Audre Lorde is to get to know your desires so that you can recognize them when they arise. 
reclaim them and repair them. I started the episode by telling you that the patriarchy made it extremely difficult to reconnect with your own desires. And now I'm telling you the way to free yourself from the patriarchy is to reconnect with your own desires. So we're going to learn how to do this in practice. Audrey Lauren knew that it wouldn't happen overnight. What she wanted to provoke is some kind of an awareness. Because first, we need to accept that our most intimate desires are partly constructed by social codes, and then it becomes possible to question them. To access desires that do not feed a system of oppression. For Audrey Lord, as for Christian Gotzi, we can say that the personal is political. And if you ignore the private sphere and you maintain the kind of traditional patriarchal family, you're going to, the, all the changes that you make in the public sphere are ultimately going to be unsustainable, which is exactly what we saw in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had really radical policies, but it maintained an incredibly patriarchal, sexist society. It's, it, mean, it is still a very sexist society. That's true of many East European countries. And so I think that the reason that we have to focus on the intimate sphere is because, first of all, Everybody cares about it. Listen to the radio. Every song is about love and romance. It's like either you met somebody or you're breaking up with somebody or you broke up with somebody and you're meeting somebody new <laughs> or somebody that you're in love with cheated on you. I mean, like, listen to pop music on the radio. What do people actually care about? People like love and sex, right? So if you want to talk about politics, I think it's very hard to to have conversations about political economy that are just all about like policy suggestions, like how, how are we going to tweak the pension law or how are we going to tax this enterprise and so we can fund this, you know, kindergarten program or whatever. Capitalism uses sexuality to sell us things all the time. And I think we should use sexuality to, 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 to reach people, to get people to think that, Look, capitalism doesn't stop when you go to your bedroom. It's when you close the door, it doesn't stay outside. It comes in with you. And because of that, we can also fight capitalism from our bedrooms as much as anywhere else. When we say that the personal is political, it implies that to achieve a feminist society, we cannot only rely on political reforms. We must also question our desires in order to reclaim them. And this isn't easy. For Christian Gotzi, it's like trying to brush your teeth with your left hand when you're right-handed. You know, sometimes when I'm talking to my students, I think I, I use the example of brushing your teeth and how, for those of us, you know, who brush our teeth every day, twice a, twice a day, um, it becomes such a such a ordinary activity that if you suddenly decide for whatever reason to use your other hand and brush your teeth with the opposite hand than you normally do, it feels so weird to do that. And it sort of jars you out of the, 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 the natural feeling of this thing. And then if you can actually start to think about like where this toothbrush came from, where did the toothbrush come from? Where did this whole idea of brushing your teeth come from? Like, why do we brush our teeth at all, right? Um, if you sort of start to expand out into the political economy of toothbrushing, which is a strange exercise to do, but it's a lot easier than trying to expand out into the political economy of love. Let me be clear here. Questioning one's desires does not mean rejecting all desires related to patriarchy. We all have the right to contradiction. 
If I want to stop working to look after my children, my desire is no less legitimate than any other. As a feminist, I can be sexually aroused by a video showing women submitting to men. The trick is to question the origin of these desires in order to be more free. For Audre Lorde, this questioning of our desires will allow us to reach excellence that transforms us into a better version of ourselves. The function of the erotic is to encourage excellence and to give us the strength to pursue it. For once we know the extent to which we are capable of feeling that sense of satisfaction, that sense of fullness, that sense of completion, we can then observe which of our various life endeavors bring us closest to that fullness. Excellence is the attitude we have when we discover in ourselves a new desire, a new source of motivation. Desire is a powerful physical and intellectual stimulus. It's not just about knowing yourself sexually. It's about learning to recognize your desires in all areas of life. And learning to know oneself and to express one's desires, especially sexual ones, is also the path advised by the philosopher Manon Garcia. I think that the greatest obstacle to, to any liberation, any equality, and the greatest product of the patriarchy is to make sure that we don't know ourselves as a desiring, not object, but subject of our own pleasure. The philosopher goes even further and explores how to express these desires, how to communicate them, as well as our limits. It's through self-knowledge and therefore through discussion about sex, through the practice of sex and the recognition that we exist that this knowledge is intersubjective and that it is constructed in relation with another, that it can be the construction of a relationship with another of the same gender, of a different gender, or with someone altogether imaginary. But to me, desire in a feminist utopia is knowing what you want, knowing why you're having sex, what you're looking for when you have sex. Repairing our desires means first of all breaking out of our passiveness, to be an initiating power, to know one's desires better and to communicate them better to the other person. Because in sex and in everything else, our desires are built through reciprocity, by expressing our desires and by welcoming those of our partner. For the philosopher, this is why, in a feminist society, women will not limit themselves to responding to propositions. They can make their own, and this is what the philosopher calls affirmative consent. Yeah, that's it. I think that's where men's sexuality needs to be changed, in terms of the yes. It's not about being happy that a woman says yes when you make her a proposition. But considering the possibility of being able to say yes or no yourself. That's why I also insist in my book that men's consent must be taken into account. It's because taking into account men's consent means taking into account the possibility of women propositioning. That's why we often say yes. Affirmative consent is saying yes. But to me, affirmative consent is more than that. 
And so basically, affirmative consent is also the possibility of a proposition. And that's what's complicated in male and female sexuality, the way in which the woman is not seen as a possible source of proposition. When we start conversations about desire and consent, we are already moving towards a feminist society. Because if we say to ourselves that desire is not I want or I don't want, it's I want to want or I don't want at all or I don't want to possibly want, well, as a result, we are led to think about consent in a more complex way because we can see. We've all, I think, had the experience of not wanting to have sex. But the presence of the other person surpasses our lack of desire, and they end up giving us desire, and and eventually pleasure. So here we are in a situation where it is really important to consider the question of consent. Because if we don't accept that desire can arise in spite of ourselves or can arise in a way that is contrary to what we really want, then we have to think about consent differently. If we also accept the possibility of saying, oh, I don't feel desire, but I want to feel desire, and so go ahead, you can start to, we can kiss, we can touch, and then we'll see if it happens, but I want this desire to arise, then we recognize that there is a temporality in female desire. And this temporality, in my opinion, invites us to think of consent as a conversation and not as something that is exchanged once and for all. Consent is more than saying yes or saying no. It's gray. It's ambiguous. The problem is that patriarchy has taken away the right to this ambiguity from women. Indeed, one of the foundations of patriarchy is the impunity of sexist and sexual violence. So the method of Manon Garcia is to choose to start the conversation around these blurred lines. And then, all women will be able to wear a red dress, sleeveless and backless, and finally enjoy feeling desired. Le consentement peut, et, et à mon sens, consent can, and in my opinion, should, be a central notion of the feminist utopia. Not only in the sense that in a perfect future, all sex would be consensual, but also because it allows the construction of that perfect future. I'm convinced that there is no change on an individual basis. We are not going to put an end to patriarchy because we will have been strong women who do not let themselves be influenced by gender norms, etc. But I think that we can, through our practices, propose or make a possible social change. And it is this social change that will change things. But I think that if we practice sex with people by respecting them, by, by understanding that there is no reason to be less respectful, less polite, less affectionate in our sexual relationships than in our friendships, for example, we change the world progressively. And therefore, I think that consent, conceiving sex as a conversation in which we talk about our desire, our pleasure, etc., it is a way to change the world.
So to achieve a feminist society, we must reclaim our desires, desires repressed by the patriarchy and shaped by capitalism. To reclaim them, we must learn to recognize them. And to recognize them, we must question what we consider to be our deepest desires. Differentiate the desires that fuel our relationship to the patriarchy from those that make us free, independent, serene. Learning, for example, to determine where between the two lies my desire for Robert Williams. The good thing is that we do not have to do all of this on our own. On the contrary, as Manon Garcia says, it's during conversations that our desires become more clear. That's why they feed off each other. They can evolve in sometimes unexpected directions. It is then that our desires can finally constitute that vital impulse, that new lease of life, that intellectual and physical stimulation, the one that the writer Audre Lorde calls excellence. And only then can desire be the engine of feminist activism. Only then can it design that perfect future, that feminist society. Thanks to historicity, thanks to radicality, thanks to joy, thanks to our repaired and recovered desires, thanks to discussions and consent, and thanks to the gray zones that we claim as gray and that will always remain gray. Because our desires are neither black nor white. They are under construction. They are under repair. They are to be recognized, questioned, expressed, and nuanced. And so I come to the next step of the method. Nuance. I'm Rebecca Amselem, and you've just listened to the fourth episode of The Method, a co-production by Louis Media and Gloria Media. This documentary series was directed by Alexandra Condilonguet. I co-wrote it with Lena Coutreau in collaboration with Fanny Ruet. Soukaina Cabal was editing and producing. The original music was composed by Clémentine Charuel and Julie Rouet. Stephanie Williamson translated the text from French to English. Tess Rosenthal was the English voice of Manon Garcia. If you're interested in this podcast, please talk about it around you. Thank you.